After an extensive tour of the United States, the well-known German pastor and theologian, Hemlich uh, Talika, was asked what he saw as the greatest, the greatest defect among American Christians. And he replied this, he said, they have an inadequate view of suffering an inadequate view of suffering. I think he was right. I've heard many, many times of Christian psychiatrists who encourage their clients to rage at God because of tragedies that they have gone through. I've heard of pastors and missionaries who have left their ministries and sometimes even left their faith because of burnout in other hardships. I've seen many in the local church quit their their ministries and sometimes drop out of church altogether because they 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 were criticized or or they ran into conflict with another believer. We have an inadequate view of suffering, I would agree with the theologian. Now I confess at the outset that that I am not qualified to preach on the subject of serving Christ through suffering. I have suffered very little in my service for Christ. And, and sure, I, I have been hit with criticism. I, I faced verbal attacks in the ministry. I've had people slander me and, and accuse me falsely and try to get me removed from the church. I've had those things happen. But I've never had to go through what many of the Lord's servants in, in China and India and Vietnam and most of, the, most of the Muslim countries go through. They suffer beatings and imprisonments and rejection by their family and, 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 and death because of Christ. In writing about the life of the great Baptist missionary to Burma, Adoniram Judson, Pastor John Piper said this, he said, More and more I am persuaded from Scripture and from the history of missions that God's design for the, for the evangelization of the world and the consummation of his purpose includes the suffering of his ministers and missionaries. To put it more plainly and specifically, God designed that the suffering of his ministers and missionary is one essential means in the joyful triumph spread of the gospel among all people of the world. Piper goes on soberly to say that if we are faithful to God's commands, to take the gospel to the remaining unreached people of this world, some of us and some of our children will be killed in the process of doing so. But this is clearly God's design, as the Bible and church history repeatedly demonstrates. In fact, God has predetermined a specific number of martyrs, according to the book of Revelation chapter 6 and verses 10 and 11. So Paul, 
that we're looking at here. We're looking at, at, at the writings of Paul as he's writing to Timothy, his, his, his son in the faith, and Paul was in his, his final imprisonment. He is waiting execution as he is writing this letter. Timothy, timid by nature, was not so sure that he wanted to follow in the great apostle's footsteps if it meant imprisonment and martyrdom. I want to emulate Paul. I want to be a faithful servant with Paul. I want to do all these things. But he is watching Paul in these final days of his life and probably thinking, "Eh, that's not what I signed up for. I'm not interested in being a martyr. It didn't sound like fun in the future. He may have been wondering if there there might be a little safer, a more pleasant line of work that he should be getting into. So Paul pleads with him not to be ashamed of the gospel, not to be ashamed of Paul, the prisoner but to join with him in suffering for the gospel. And so Paul, Paul mentions this in, in every chapter of the letter. In chapter 2 and verse 3, he writes, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. In chapter 3 and verse 12, he reemphasized, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And again in chapter 4 and verse 5, he exhorts Timothy to endure hardship in his ministry. Therefore, our text begins, verse 8. Therefore, it points us back to verses 5 to 7 that we looked at last week. Because you are saved, Timothy... And God has given you a spiritual gift to use in serving him. Therefore, join with me in suffering for the gospel. And so Paul is making the point that when you serve Christ, be prepared to suffer for the gospel. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're a Christian and you're serving Christ, whether you are a preacher or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or a children's worker or or a Christian that's trying to reach your neighbors and share Christ with people around you, you're trying to walk with God and live a holy life, therefore you will suffer for the gospel. So this morning we are continuing our series in the message through 2 Timothy, and God has been faithful to us. And we want to be faithful to him, running the race, to keep on keeping on, to persevere in the face of of adversity and difficulties and trials and suffering, enduring by the power of God until we cross the finish line of our lives and we enter into the very presence of our Lord, faithful to the finish line. We left off last week in, at verse 7, and you'll remember we were reading about our, our being faithful and fearless. Paul writes in verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. If you're a Christian and, and you are fearful, that fear didn't come from God. God has not given us a spirit of fear. He has given us a spirit of power. 
He's given us a spirit of love. He's given us a spirit of a sound mind. And how do we get a sound mind? Paul tells us in, in Romans that we, we need to renew our minds. And we do that by studying the word of God. And so now Paul, Paul builds on this portion and, uh, of scriptures, the, this notion of our being fearless and going on to tell us that because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, we also may be uh, encouraged and we may endure suffering, but we need to be encouraged. Let's read our text. We're reading verse 8 of 2 Timothy chapter 1 down through verse 12 this morning. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoners, but share with me in the suffering of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel, to which I I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Now, one of the most liberating truths of the Christian life is that we do not live the Christian life in our own power. We live our Christian life in the power of God. That is so liberating. We don't need to try to get ourselves worked up and, and encouraged in anything. We're living in the power of God. And so Paul is right on. And, 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 and the, the very first verse of that passage this morning, verse 8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And so all, all that we do as Christians, all we are asked to do by our Lord, all that we do, we do not in our own power, but we do it in the power of God. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, for example, Jesus said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. He didn't say, You're going to be my witness, and someday if you do a good job, then I'll give you the Holy Spirit to, to empower you. No, we have the Holy Spirit the moment we accept Christ as our Savior, and the Holy Spirit empowers us to walk with Christ and to share Christ with the lost world. So, so we, don't, we don't witness in our own power, but we witness in the power of the, of the Lord. Or, or as we read a moment ago, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power. So, so God has given us power to live the Christian life, and that power includes the power, first of all, of suffering. Verse 8. So Paul Paul. Just as a reminder, Paul is in his 60s at this particular point in his life. He's in prison in Rome, and he's writing to his young son in the ministry, Timothy. 
Now, many scholars believe that Paul was imprisoned in the Mamertine prison in Rome, and we've talked a lot about that prison and what it was like and where it was located and how close to the Senate it was and how quickly his execution could come about once the order was handed down. And church tradition has Paul in this prison in the last days of his life. In other words, he was taken out of the dungeon, out of the hole, and his head was cut off. So according to tradition, this prison was built around 630 B.C. It was built originally as a cistern or as a, 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 as a spring. It was an underground reservoir for, for spring water in, in the floor of the second level of this, what is now prison. Prisoners were lowered through an opening in the floor about 12 feet down to a lower dungeon. Just one hole. 12 feet down, wasn't a very big hole, and down into that dungeon. And they lived in this dark, dank hole about the size of, of, of maybe an average one-car garage. It wasn't very big, but that's where, he, that's where he lived. There was no windows to see the outside. There were no friends down there to be with them. Uh, it was cold. It was miserable. I think that's why later on, when it, as we get towards the end of the book in chapter 4, and he's talking about Timothy, come before winter, Timothy, and when you come, would you go get my cloak and bring that with you? I think it was cold down there. He said, bring the books, especially the parchments. The parchments would have been the Bible of what they had. He wanted to read the scriptures. He's in, a, he's in a hole waiting to be executed. And, and, and this is so important to remember because this is the last location from which we would expect to receive a letter so full of encouragement, right? I mean, he, he, he is, he's encouraging Timothy. I mean, despite Paul's imprisonment and despite that any day now, He's, he's going to be pulled out of that prison and taken outside where the Roman emperor orders will be carried out. Namely, Nero's order. And we know from history that Nero was a tyrant. I mean, he was the one that would tie, tie Christians to a post along the walkway and douse them with pitch, and then he would light them as human torches to light the pathway that would go out to the gardens where he was having parties. This is the kind of man we're talking about. And so, so Paul is waiting for, for the ex execution order to be given from Nero, uh, Nero to cut off his head. And despite this, Paul opens his letter with grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. What can give a, a, a Christian that kind of peace? God's power, power to suffer, Power to suffer according to the power of God, not according to our own power, but according to the power of God. And, and so because of this power, Paul writes to Timothy in verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, not of me either, a prisoner. I, I, I don't think it's, it's really right to assume that Timothy was ashamed, but the tendency was leaning in that direction. It's not like he was ashamed, like, like being ashamed. And so Paul is saying, stop that, Timothy, knock it off, straighten up. But rather, Paul is reminding Timothy, someone who, who may likely grow fearful. 
Paul is reminding him not to be fearful, but to continue to speak out, to continue to be courageous when facing persecution. Remember, God has given you this gift of speaking. Remember, remember that you're a fellow servant of mine. And, and, and we remember, because we just studied that last week, don't allow the gift to go out like a fire flickering, but rather flame that gift into flames, fan it into flames. Timothy, and, and don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. By God's power, preserve, keep on keeping on. I, I think Paul probably could think that, that possibly in that moment when, when Paul was executed that Timothy might want to go in hiding. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me, Paul, uh, uh, Timothy. In the New Testament, Christian suffer, suffering is normal. It's not, it's not exceptional. Christians are expected to suffer for the gospel. This letter is full of this theme of suffering and enduring for the gospel and, and, a, and a call not to be ashamed, but to be faithful in suffering, faithful to the finish. That's what it is. I mean, listen, listen to this reoccurring theme throughout the letter that, that, uh, that, that Paul says in this chapter. He says in, in verse 16, chapter 1, on that, Onesiphorus was not ashamed of my chains. In chapter 2 and verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 9, I am suffering for the gospel, bound with chains as a criminal. Verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Verse 12 in chapter 2, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Verse 15, do not do your best to present yourself a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Verse 24, and the Lord's servant must patiently endure evil. Chapter 3, verse 1, in the last days there will come times of difficulties. Chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, you have followed my uh, persecution and suffering. Verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Verse 5 of chapter 4, as for you, endure suffering. Verse 6 in chapter 4, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. In verse 7 of chapter 4, I have fought the good fight. And so, so Paul just continues to go on and on and talk about this whole idea of suffering. And, and this theme of suffering led John Piper to write, If you want an easy life, secure, esteemed, untroubled, comfortable, safe, then get out of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Don't serve Christ because you're not going to serve Christ and avoid trouble. And all of the things they said there. So just a reminder that, that when we go through times of suffering and persecution, there is, is nothing wrong with us. Nothing wrong at all. This is to be expected. And the so-called prosperity gospel is a false gospel, largely, and, and um, um, it's largely American phenomena that wrongly teaches that you should be healthy and wealthy, especially wealthy, and that you will never suffer harm if you just believe. You're not believing enough if you're suffering harm. That's a false religion. So, 
So how did that work out for Paul? I mean, how did, how did it work out for, for the 12 apostles? All but, but one died a martyr's death. How did that work out for our Lord Jesus Christ? He was beaten and smitten and crucified on a Roman cross. Many of our Christian brothers and sisters are facing severe persecution in communist third world countries even today. The happy-faced, smiling evangelists have no words for them because they know only the false gospel of American prosperity preaching. It's nonsense. Timothy says in chapter 3 and verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He didn't say they might. If you don't have enough faith, it'll happen. No, he said, if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you'll suffer persecution. Don't be ashamed of the gospel and don't be ashamed of me or the Lord's, uh, the Lord's prisoner. So Timothy was likely tempted to disassociate himself with Paul. The social stigma of knowing someone or being tied to someone who was in prison for Christ could pose a, a, a temptation to Timothy of doing as Peter did to Jesus before his crucifixion. I don't know him. I don't know him. And he cursed and said, I don't know him. I wear a wedding band on my finger because I'm married. It tells the world around me that I belong to someone else. And I look at my wedding band and 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 people look at that and they say, okay, he's married. He's, he belongs to someone. He's not ashamed to let other people know that he belongs to, that, to somebody else. And that's true. And, and I love my wife. And I, I share with, with you why I love her, why she is wonderful, and so on. But what if I was ashamed to be identified with my wife? What if I said, I love her, but... But really, my heart wasn't with her. Well, I might not wear my wedding band. And, and, and I may not, not my, my not wearing it would send a message, really, that I'm not really that associated with her. That I don't want you to think that I belong to someone. Well, Christians are identified with Christ. We have been baptized, which is, a, which is a powerful symbol, like a wedding band, that tells the world that we belong to Christ. And we are, are unashamed of our identity with Jesus Christ. Sad thing, here in America, being baptized isn't a very threatening thing. But when we, when we were in Vietnam... And we had believers that wanted to be baptized. It meant that they would be ostracized from their families. They would lose their job. And very likely, if the authorities got a hold of them, they would lose their life. That's a pretty serious thing, isn't it? Because they were identifying with Jesus Christ. As a Christian, we stand with Christ. So we face persecution for our faith. And so we will, we will suffer 
persecution when we take a stand for Christ. But we have the power of God through suffering to be a testimony to Jesus. Second, we have the power to be saved. Where did I go? Did I? There we go. We have the power to be saved. With reference to God, Paul writes in verse 9 that, that God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So this, this is remarkable. God has saved us, not, not we ourselves. We haven't saved ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't, we can't earn a position of favor with God. He saves us not according to our works. You see that right there? He says, it's not according to your works. We are not saved by what we do. We, we, we mentioned the false gospel of the prosperity gospel. Uh, another false gospel is the gospel of good works. Someone asks, well, how do, how do we get to heaven? Another person answers by being good, doing good, being baptized, going to church, giving your money. That's how you go to heaven. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible says very, very clearly in verse 9, God saved us not according to our works. It's like Paul wrote in, in Ephesians 2.9, not of works. He wrote in Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And so verse 9 stresses the divine agency of our salvation. He has saved us and called us. And he has done this not according to our works, not, 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 not at all, but according to his own purpose and grace, he saved us. And furthermore, God, God saves us in Jesus Christ as a, as a plan in God's mind before time began. You realize that? Before God even created the world, he already knew you and he knew me and he had a plan to save us. And he knew we would accept Christ as our Savior. Before time began. Wow. God sees all of this at once and, and plans it all in one moment. He planned it all. Before he created the world, God saw all of this and then actualized everything. So here, here then is the Christian's ground for assurance. How can we know for certain that we are saved for eternity? How can we be sure that God will keep us saved? Well, it's part and partial of God's own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Before the creation of the world, God planned everything. He knew it all. He ordained it all. He created it all. Uh, the, fall, the creation, the fall, the cross, redemption, all of that, you're, you're redeemed. Your, your salvation, your glorification, he, he planned it all. And if you are in Christ, you are included in the all of God's plan. Isn't that fantastic? Nothing we can do to get rid of that. It's what God did. So, so this plan, this eternal plan, a plan before the time began, is a plan that verse 10 says, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. The word abolish death means to render inoperable to render inoperable, or to make something that had power to now be powerless. 
If you're a Christian, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, Christ has abolished death in your life. He, he has rendered death inoperable. He has taken away the power and the sting of death. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, oh, death, where is your sting? Well, Christ took it away. You see, if you're a Christian, you never really die. You simply pass on from a broken place, this earth, to a perfect place in glory. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? And, and how is all of that possible? Because Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And Paul goes on to say that it is a gospel to which he was appointed in verse 11, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentile. The gospel, power to save. And I, I, I'm reminded of Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 where Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Power to be saved. Now before we go on, I want you to note this about the Christian salvation. It is a holy calling. A holy calling. It's not the idea that you get saved and go ahead and do whatever you want to do and live any way you want to live and continue in sin and all that. No, it's a holy calling. And so, so in verse 9 there, he says that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling. The NIV has it like this. God has saved us and called us to, be, to a holy life or to live a holy life. Now, let me just remind you of the three tenses of salvation. Maybe you've never really heard this before, but we can speak of our salvation in three different ways. The past reality, the present reality of our salvation, and the future reality of our salvation. And this is where I think some people get a little bit confused. I have been saved. I have been saved, and, and, and that's true. I have been saved forever, saved from sin's penalty. That happened the moment that Christ convicted me of sin and drew my heart to him, and I was declared righteous in heaven in the eyes of God, and I was clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ has covered my sin. I have been saved, but I am being saved, saved day by day from sin's power. And, and, and that's what we're talking about here, this holy living, this day-by-day -day salvation from the power of sin. Now, if I stumble in this area, I don't lose my salvation because I've already been saved and declared righteous in the eyes of God in that first part where I've been saved. I'm being saved. This is a side that sometimes we talk about uh, our, our sanctification, where we are striving to be more like Christ, and, and there's sin in our life. And when we commit sin, we, we ask God to forgive us our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm being saved. But, but one day, in future tense, I will be saved. I will be saved from sin's presence. I will be in a place of perfection where there is no longer any sin at all. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. It's all part of my salvation. It's the Christian knowing that I have been saved, past tense, and I will be saved, future tense, to where I won't be around sin anymore and be totally done away with. 
And that motivates me to live in this world here and now, being saved, walking in holiness, growing in my Christ-likeness and my sanctification. And so God has given us the power to suffer. He's given us the power to be saved. And finally, God has given Christians the power to stand. The power to stand. And that's what I was talking about just a little bit ago, about the power to stand up in the face of adversity, the power to to stand fast and to stand firm, the power to be faithful to the finish line. And, and, and you, really, you really get the feel of Paul standing fast and being faithful there in, in verse 12 when he says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. Paul is like, I may, I may be sitting here in prison in this dark hole in the ground. I may be suffering all of the same. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. And he's like, and I'll tell you why I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. So where Paul writes what I've committed to him, he is likely referring to his soul, to his life, to us all, the entirety of his work for the Lord. It's a reminder again that that the security of our salvation does not depend upon us, but it depends totally upon God. And so that hymn that we sang earlier today, what a wonderful hymn, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known. I don't know why he did that. Nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own, but I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. And that comes from this verse right here. I know whom I have believed. Whom I have believed, not what I have believed. You see, there's a difference in religion and a relationship. I know whom I have believed. Christ is not just a body of teaching. It's not just a principle. Christianity is a person. I know whom I have believed. I'm secure. My salvation is secure until that day. The day I stand before my judge, that day, the final day of reckoning, and this knowledge, this, this, uh, this assurance helps me to stand in the face of adversity. And, and, and for this reason, I also suffer these things unashamedly. Paul's boldness in, in his not being ashamed der- derives from the popular modern notion of self-confidence, but God's confidence. He was confident in God, not in himself. He is confident also that his relationship with the Lord is an unbreakable, indissolvable union. And he wrote in in Romans chapter 8 and verses 38 and 39, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate me or us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul, Paul reasons in verse 12, I'm not ashamed because I know where I'm going. I can, I can persevere because I know where I'm heading. Come what may, I know how this is all going to end. In an instant, I'm going to be in the presence of God. doesn't matter how it happens. 
I know where I'm going. My life does not end with the Roman emperors cutting off my head. Oh, no, not at all. This, that will merely be the end of a beginning. I will pass from this broken place to a perfect place. And so Paul deals with his current affliction by looking forward to the future perfection. Or, or as I've heard Alistair Begg puts it, that Paul deals with what assails him in the awareness of what awaits him. He knows where he's headed. A place where he writes, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness in chapter 4 and verse 8. So God has given us the power to suffering, the power to be saved, and the power to stand, to be faithful to the finish line. Nick, Nick uh, Ripken wrote a, a book about Christians who had been suffering for the Lord, and that book's called The Insanity of God. If, you, if you've ever seen that, this is the story from that. But Nick visits and interviews a number of Christians who were faithful to the finish line and recorded their stories in this book, The Insanity of God. I think there's a movie out even now, The Insanity of God, but Ripken writes of his having visited the former Soviet Union to interview Russian and Ukrainian church leaders who had to stand fast and refuse to compromise their faith during the time of intense Christian persecution under the old USSR. And listen to this section here where one Christian shares the story of his, his father, a Russian pastor. He said, I remember the day like it was yesterday. My father put his arm around me and my sister and my brother and guided us into the kitchen to sit down around the table where he could talk to us. My mama was crying, so I knew that something was wrong, and Papa didn't look at her because he was, he was talking directly to us, and he said, children, you know that I am the pastor of our church, and that's what God has called me to do to tell others about him. I have learned that the communist authorities will come tomorrow to arrest me. They will put me in prison because they want me to stop preaching about Jesus. But I cannot stop doing, doing that because I must obey God. I'm, I, I will miss you very much, but I will trust God to watch over you while I'm gone. Then he hugged each one of his children and then he said, all around this part of the country, the authorities are rounding up followers of Jesus and demanding that they deny their faith. Sometimes when they refuse, the authority will line up whole families and hang them by the neck until they're dead. And I don't want that to happen to our family, so I am praying that once they put me in prison, they will leave you and your mother alone. However, and here he paused and made his eye contact with the children. He said, if I am in prison and I hear that my wife and my children have been hung to death rather than deny Jesus, I will be the most proud man in that prison. Nick, Nick writes, when he finished the story, he said, I was stunned. I had never heard that kind of thing in my church growing up. I had never encountered that in my pilgrimage. I was sure that I had never been told that a father should value his faith over his family. And yet, that is what we are called to do. And that is what we are empowered to do. God gives us the power to suffer. He gives us the power to be saved. And he gives us the power to stand. Stand firm to the end. Faithful to the finish line.
Let's pray.